Ooh, that was that was a dud. Yeah, <laughs> that was a dud. This is why we replaced the noise of our clinkies. because <laughs> yeah, they are not consistent. <laughs> no, they're not. Sometimes, sometimes a good, sometimes they make a shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> welcome to Laid Back Lush, where our clinks are inconsistent, oh just like our content. Just kidding, our content's amazing. Please tell us that our content is amazing. Please tell us that our content is amazing. You know what else has been really inconsistent? Your introductions. Yes, and the history of wine. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> welcome to Laid Back Lush. We are. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Well, I'm leaving all of this in. I hope you know. I'm leaving all of this in. Sure, that's fine. That's fine this time. Okay, in that case, then uh, then I'll just make this as non sequitur a voice transition as possible. Welcome to Laid Back Lush. My name is Michael, a former wine sales associate as well as vineyard worker. And I am Gabe. I am WSCT Level 3 certified in wine, and I am an administrator for a wine and spirits educating body. And during our time in which we hope that you give us your undivided attention, unless you are driving, in which case please divide your attention, we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. Mm -hmm. If you haven't already done so, please follow us at LaidbackLush on Instagram and Twitter, and shoot us a DM if there's any content that you would like to see on our pages or in our podcast. And so we do have some interesting content lined up for you. We we do have particularly some Christmas related content lined up for you. Oh dear God, Michael's really excited. He sent me a video (laughs) last night, and and I was a little hesitant to even open it because I'm just like, it has to be important if he had to send a video. Either that or there's like some form of violence in his neighborhood that he's, you know, recording. Or some kind of emotional violence that I want to enact <laughs> upon you. What, you see why I was hesitant at this point. Like, if you're friends with me in real life, you probably understand why getting a video for me late at night is concerning. <laughs> <laughs> so he sends me this video and he uh, he described to me what he wants to do for kind of like a little Christmas holiday special. And let me tell you guys, I am horrified. I'm excited. Yeah. Also horrified, but also excited. Yeah, it's it's that weird kind of uh, horror that happens to you right before you know that you're about to indulge in a horrible experience mm-hmm. that is also going to be amazing. Mm-hmm. Kind of like our Gas Station's Wine episode. Which, Great episode, by the way. No, you need to listen to it if you haven't. It's It's amazing, actually. I was just telling somebody about it the other day, describing how it was the shrimp... <laughs> tasting rosé <laughs> that was not in that episode unfortunately that we couldn't episode. get our hands on the rosé but we have tried it and oh boy it tastes like oh, yeah. it, it's bad and then the acetone jolly rancher uh-huh, yeah yeah and then the motor oil merlot <laughs> can these please just be their official wine names now i would respect it more honestly it would at least be more honest yeah but things that aren't trying to pretend to be wine from Italy, like that cup of Divino, <sighs> uh, were the topic that we we're going to be having today. Indeed. So we finished off last week by talking about basically the ancient world of wine. Yeah, the ancient world of wine, the Paleolithic, the Neolithic spread of Venice vinifera, and how it started to be cultivated by different cultures, including that of the Nile Delta, or as many of you would call it, the Egyptian region. Yes. But the thing is, is that it didn't stop there. And we really started to get more of our canonized spread and development of wine when we saw Roman culture become a thing. 
And of course, Roman culture then became Christian culture, and that ended up being spread throughout most of the European world, as well as the Mediterranean, until you saw some different balances of power being shifting around, shifting around yeah. a little bit. Which brings us full circle back to inconsistency. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God, this is, this is the most shoddy like introduction. Hey, you know, sometimes you hit it out of the park, sometimes... You know, you, you kind of bunt it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you, you just do a little bunt and hope that they're not fast enough to catch you. Exactly. So that is going to be, though, what we're talking about today, primarily. So basically, in, in short summary, Rome up through essentially the Renaissance. Exactly. Yeah. So first, we, we had Roman wine, and this has been documented from about 200 BC. Yeah. There are a bunch of different texts. Luckily, all of them are in Latin, which has been uh, translated. You can actually even look these up. The Res Rusticae, the De Re Rustica, as well as it's called something, the Antidote. And it was actually done by a guy who was the physician for Marcus Aurelius. So these all actually very thoroughly tell us a lot about not only the culture of wine drinking, but also the general taste. Uh, the demands that the populace was having on it, and even the economy surrounding it. Mm -hmm. In Rome, they didn't even really have wine. It was something that was primarily being created by the Macedonians and the Greeks and different people in that region while they were focused on conquering yeah. the entire peninsula of what is considered modern-day Italy. Or what is modern-day Italy? It is not just considered. This is not contested. China hasn't made uh, made a statement against them as a country yet. So we're allowed to say that yeah. for now. Yeah, John Cena didn't have to apologize for calling Italy in, a sovereign nation. In what is surprisingly good Mandarin, by the way. If you haven't seen that video, oh look it gosh. up. It's crazy. Um, but once they did actually defeat all of those inhabitants of the peninsula, they took over completely. They started thinking of wine as a way of generating wealth. They were yeah. thinking, we, we've conquered the Mediterranean now. We control import and export. We're just really bored. Yeah, let's, just, let's just grow some grapes. Let's get Greece to give us some vines. It was like a whole thing. Like People had to convince in the Roman circles uh, of authority that growing wine and specifically creating a monopoly on wine in the world was the best way to grow wealth. And they were, like, kind of right. Well, they, they were for a little bit. Yeah, yeah, there were some problems later on, but... Because they forbade wine grapes being grown north of the Alps. Yeah. But the problem was this. They got so many people moving to the cities because they kept on establishing more and more of their villa estates, which mm -hmm. were primarily manned through slave labor. Yeah. They were exporting to places like Gaul, modern-day France, and other places throughout the world in exchange for slaves. But the problem became that there became a, a, a slave shortage. The demand for wine became much greater because it became a political device. Yeah. So then it was, there was so much demand that the law against growing grapes north of the Alps, it couldn't be followed because they actually needed the import of yeah. wine. From modern historical findings, we also suspect that even at the time that the laws were made, they weren't really being observed very rigorously. No. Um, because well, obviously, yeah. Well, the thing is, Rome would take vines with them when they would go on their military conquests, and they would actually plant vines in these places. That's part of how France. I mean, France did have indigenous grapes as well, but that's how France or Gaul at the time even got viticulture as 
more yeah. uh, properly defined as you know winemaking processes. Well, because the soldiers didn't want to depend on trade routes in yeah. order to have wine. Yeah, well, and wine didn't last for very long. No. Even though their storage was pretty good, they used clay amphoras in Rome, which are porous to a degree so there's still some micro oxygenation that takes place um and they would add resin to their wine as well and resin would also help preserve the wine but it's still it was nothing like today well in one storm and all those clay pots get broken exactly um but actually aging did become a thing in rome regardless of whether the wine was still good or not older wines still fetched a higher price because there was a demand for aged wine in rome so that kind of got lost during the Middle Ages, which we'll get into. But the idea of aged wine kind of dates back all the way to the Roman Empire, which is really fascinating. Yeah. Well, a lot of things. Is like So Res Rusticae, which is where that's documented, mm-hmm. Pliny actually even was talking about that. And he's like, so you have your thinner wines, mm-hmm. and they can be aged like, or they can be fermented like this, and then you have to drink them within a year. Yeah. Then you have your your better wines. And those can be aged up to 20 years. And after that, you get a sharp drop off in quality. And it's like, oh, my God, this is the first time we're seeing this. Yeah. Let's dive into that a little bit. You mentioned there is a culture and, mm. and a style of wine. or Well, actually, there are several styles of wine in Rome. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a couple of different uh, types of wine. They were based on the type of grape as well as the quality of the region. And through these texts, we actually even see regions being... <laughs> Not so much designated in the modern sense, but at least recognized mm-hmm. for their quality. Yeah. So you would have a specific type of grape, and it could be grown in a bunch of different regions, but the one that was considered the best would have been the Falernian, the Albin, or the, oh, Kai Cuban? I don't even ask me to try and pronounce Roman words. I'm sorry, neither <laughs> Gabe nor I are ancient Romans. Yeah. So I believe one of those grapes is modern-day Aglianico. I could be wrong about that, but I do remember running into Aglianico and reading about Rome. It, it very well could be, and I did run into several types of grapes, but they it's it's a believed-to-be type of deal. Yeah, so we talked last episode about, you know, clones, hybrids, crossings, and the lineage of grapes. It's hard, even with our current research and even genetic testing, it's still very hard to get concrete examples of what vine is what until about the Renaissance period. Yeah. So just kind of know that going forward is there's a lot of speculation about what these grapes might have been or if they're even still around today, but they were named at the time. So a couple of different ways were used in order to ferment these for your thinner wines. You would have a style where they would bury pots into the ground. Mm -hmm. For your thicker wines, they would actually allow them to be exposed uh, to even rain, actually. Sun, moon, and rain. Um, and wind is what uh what this is the real terroir natural winemakers get on it <laughs> yeah exactly let your vats be open to rain yeah come don't, on don't be a, a little scaredy cat don't be a pansy don't, don't tell me your wine's experimental if it hasn't gone through at least three different seasons yeah five different historic weather events does your winemaking facility have a ceiling pansy (laughs) (laughs) sherry producers right now are like oh we're we're in (laughs) natural winemaker intensifies (laughs) anyway so back to rome 
Back to Rome. And so all of these different styles would then be designated to different sects of society. Mm -hmm. So more and more of the countryside just ended up being taken up for these villas. Yeah. And so then at your common functions, you would have a type of wine that was mixed with honey, not like a mead. It wasn't uh, yeah, like, it's not it's not honey wine. It is wine mixed with honey. Precisely. Um, it's uh, oh no, he said the bad thing. Take that out. <laughs> I don't know if I want to. <laughs> I really don't know if I want to. <laughs> you are at my mercy right now. <laughs> no, it's, it's isn't it funny how like when you're looking for something, like you can you just make start making any noises. noises. Like yeah. especially my favorite is the soft laser noises. You know. <laughs> um oh gosh so i can't can't find their specific names um but you had one that was mixed with honey directly before being served so not like your your chinese fermented honey not like mead and that was typically handed out to the masses at events in order to buy votes i wish politicians would still do that man like if they were just like yeah 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 we're gonna be doing like this uh oh god what do they called even the the um political gatherings before elections i can't remember the name for some reason right now uh dens of corruption (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's what i call them at least but wouldn't it be awesome if they were also lush dens of corruption yeah no i I would be 50 percent 30% 30% more okay with them. I would be 70% more politically active. So that would be, <laughs> no, but they would, they would do that. And then they had some that were mixed with herbs. And a lot of that was also handed out during social gatherings. Mm-hmm. So people would even economize. They would not drink wine themselves, but they would have wine available at their house. Yeah. And eventually it actually became more profitable to sell from your house mm-hmm. than even to export to other countries. Yeah. Because the demand was so high. Yeah, the market... In the modern context, it became a bubble, essentially. So at that point, you had wine that was made for slaves, which was essentially the leftover bits of skin and stalk fermented with some water. Mm -hmm. And that was given to them. And then you had this, not quite honey wine, but honey wine. Infused wine. (laughs) Yeah, honey infused. We stirred some honey in it. (laughs) Or we put some herbs in it. You had those, and that was kind of for your, like, middle class. And then you had your Falernian and all of that. They're they're kind of grand crew status. Yeah. And that's what was available to even emperors. And that was something interesting that I came across, well, we both came across, is Rome kind of had what, in a modern context, would be grand crew vineyards, Which is beautiful. Yeah, it's also really interesting about how even the Romans back then were able to pick up on site selection is very important. Because up until this point, it was more about Greek wine, Phoenician wine, like it was more of a region specific title. And the Romans narrowed it down to vineyard specific. Yeah. So like, when you think about how in history, this field of vision on what terroir is, this is really showing that first movement towards an understanding of terroir. Yeah. Because you have not only, oh, well, this is from this region, it's it's from this mountain. And it's not just from this mountain, Mount Falernus, it is from the southern slopes of Mount Falernus. At that point, you start seeing the same language that's yeah. being used in modern day which to me is just the most exciting thing. Yeah, it's really cool they were able to pick it up this early on in viticulture. Oh, yeah. And even so, like, I and I mentioned this to Gabe before we started recording, 
Even Marcus Aurelius, and I will paraphrase his quote, he was known as saying that it was important when you were looking through different delicacies, he was a Stoic, mind you, that you had to remind your imagination that Falernian wine was just grape juice. Yeah. He was having to rein his own enthusiasm in to remain Stoic. That's a that's uh, a closeted hedonist, in, in my opinion. <laughs> I agree. A bit, I mean, isn't every Stoic? I mean, truth. Except for maybe Seneca. I like Seneca. Seneca was great. In any case, we saw that uh, Rome was so crucial to the development yeah. of viticultural practices, and they spread this. It was like Gabe said, when they were going and they were conquering different areas, they would bring it with them. And it was, it was also considered, because they... They really loved the idea of conquering. Yeah. They loved the idea itself. So planting vineyards in what was considered to be the bush of hostile territories was considered conquering the land itself. Mm -hmm. And that showed your ability as a leader in order to make something out of the raw material of a newly conquered area. Yeah. So it was also a political thing. They wanted this all the time. And then religion got mixed into it. And then Christianity. (laughs) Yeah. So the Roman Empire, if you didn't know, converted to Christianity. Which emperor was that officially converted the empire? I don't remember off the top of my head. I should have written this down. It wasn't Nero. No, no, it was not Nero. Nero was the opposite. Yeah. What was it? Hold on. I'm looking this up. Constantine. Yep. God. You know, you would think the fact that there's a place called Constantinople at the Byzantine Empire that was also Christian might give that away. You know, it's almost like Constantine is one of the most commonly relatable names to Christianity. You know, we're just a couple of himbos trying to make a podcast. Yeah, no, exactly. So don't give us too much flack. Part three. (laughs) (laughs) It just keeps coming back. And he did that in 313 AD, which was a full. 40 years after they decided, hey, if you want to grow wine, you can grow wine. It doesn't matter who you are. Yeah. So basically, religion entered in, and then obviously, everybody knows communion. So wine, due to the sacred nature of communion, became... The Edict of Milan. Yeah, and that became very venerated. And this carried on into the Middle Ages, which we're going to kind of, I guess, be transitioning to here pretty soon. The effects of that were... Really high-quality wine was typically used in sacramental religious practices for Christianity. So this was not necessarily going to be that wine mixed with honey, or is definitely not what was going to be given to the slaves. Um, It was good wine, because you're going to give the best to God, right? Or to really the priest who's going to be the one drinking it. So, kind of fast-forwarding, unless you had anything else on Rome... I mean, no. The only thing I would I would actually mention is that uh, before the Edict of Milan, which was uh, around 10 years after Constantine took power, it was actually in 48 AD that you saw the first vines being planted in the territory of the Picts and the Celts and all yeah. of them. So that's modern-day Europe. It was not actually composed of Anglo-Saxons at the time. It was a bunch of indigenous populations known as the Picts, yeah. the Celts, etc., And that was when these were introduced. So then these laws actually had to be spread. Mm -hmm. And so basically they they had to introduce completely new gods to far-off colonies. Yeah. So flash forward, fall of Rome, Europe gets plunged into the Dark Ages, Middle Ages. And basically, oh, also something during that time was the Muslims were 
a big force in the Mediterranean. And they, they act, did work. They did work. And they did a lot of work against winemaking in particular because at that time, and in a lot of places, very traditional Muslim sects today, uh, they banned drinking. Yeah. Now, the Muslims were kind of interesting in terms of how they ruled. They were... At certain points, fairly tolerant, actually, particularly of other religions and practices. At other times, not so much. So they even had like second class citizenship for people who were of different of, religions. Of the book, right? Yeah, yeah it was book. it was the Jews and the Christians because you know they were all considered descendants of Abraham. Exactly. So you kind of had a weird dichotomy with Muslim rule, where yes. Viticulture was banned, but in some places you could still get away with at least growing grapes. So there was kind of a weird point around the Mediterranean and particularly also the Iberian Peninsula, which if you don't know what that is, that is where modern day Spain and Portugal are located. Muslims had a very strong influence up through the Middle Ages, up kind of ended around the time of the Renaissance starting. Mm -hmm. And that had a very big impact on them because they were able to continue growing grapes and making wine. But it wasn't until monks came in later on, which we'll be getting to here in a second, that their viticultural knowledge really advanced. But it advanced in a very big way. So Middle Ages happen. We have also, again, that distinction between classes and even events now where people can come and consume wine of different qualities. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So basically during the Middle Ages, you know, after the fall of Rome and obviously all those trade routes were interrupted in the Muslim takeover in the Arabian Peninsula, you know, wine was not making its way up anymore. So wine became a very localized thing. We do have particularly Benedictine and Cistercian monks keeping winemaking knowledge like alive at all, really. Dom Perignon was a Benedictine monk and, you know, kind of the quote-unquote father of Champagne. And you can learn more about him in our Champagne episode. But basically, in terms of class, because of the scarcity of wine, kind of in general, but particularly good wine, that was normally limited to like aristocracy, nobles, and the upper classes of society. The average person did drink wine because it was usually put in water or drank instead of water. From a modern mindset, that might sound a bit weird, but you think about it, they didn't have ways of purifying water. They didn't have Precisely. water infrastructure like modern developed countries do. Can you imagine not having a tap in your home? Yeah. So, you know, you're relying on water that's potentially contaminated, but you do know, which is something we've known for a long time, even before the Middle Ages— Alcohol kills things. Yeah. Or contaminants, at least, particularly microbes. So that helped make water safer to drink. So well, we water... didn't know that, but we did know that wine make it safe drink. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so wine was commonly, especially for lower classes, mixed into water. Also, their wine would have been more inferior forms of wine. The wine a lot overall, of it was sweeter. It was sweeter. A lot of the wine overall was actually considered to be inferior to what came before from Rome, um, just because, again, a lot of that knowledge got lost. Well, and also the people that introduced the practices were garrison members. Yeah, and until the monks really started to study winemaking, it was incredibly inconsistent, much like this podcast, apparently. Full circle. Full circle. Full circle. No, at this point, it's a spiral. <laughs> oh, we yeah. all know that spiral energy. <laughs> Have you guys way. read Uzumaki by Junji Ito <laughs> oh by any chance? Uh, <laughs> I was actually going more the way of Gurren Lagan, but... Oh, no. I, uh, Junji Ito is fantastic, and I will always reference him when I give him the chance. And, and I, I second your enthusiasm <laughs> surrounding the topic. 
but at the same time, spiral energy. Anyway, enough of us being weebs. Let's move to, <laughs> to Europe. Uh, so, have you seen Vinland Saga? It actually talks about that. <laughs> Oh, Lord. Okay. Back on topic. (laughs) So um, during holidays, it was very common for just kind of everybody to drink wine, but Mm. it was still very expensive. And going back to what I was saying about the quality of wine, the wine quality was not great. Even during these holidays, they would typically be mixing the wine in with things. And part of the reason the wine was of inferior quality to the Romans was they were storing in barrels instead of amphoras. And barrels at the time were not quite as reliable and yay engineering well and they didn't know that you had to store them in like constant temperatures they you know these are things we figured out later but the romans knew though but again that knowledge didn't always make its way up and they they also didn't have a particular fondness for reading yes in dark ages yeah particularly if you were not in the clergy but anyway that's a different subject for a different time so The barrels that they were using were probably not of great quality to begin with, and they were stored in very inconsistent, uh, fluctuating temperatures. The wine quickly would turn to vinegar. So wine was most expensive during harvest because that's when it tasted the best. And also uh, with quality, everybody was fermenting kind of in their own way. They were fermenting on the skins, and there was like a lot of them were open top fermenters. So just like Kind of anything and everything would get into wine. There was weird practices to try and make wine not sour, including putting sand in it. Very superstitious time. And they could have tried salting the wine. I wonder what that would have done. Uh, actually, in the ancient world, fun fact, they would mix seawater sometimes into their wine. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that was actually in the uh, the Rustica. They, yeah. they talk about, hey, and by the way, if you want to make some seawater for your wine, you can do. They have recipes upon recipes. Yeah, it's really interesting. But no, they were not using seawater. They were using wheat and sand instead to try and make their wines less sour, which obviously did not work. So what they ended up kind of doing later on in the Middle Ages was mixing it. Basically, what the Romans did, they would mix it with honey. They would mix it um, also with herbs. That through line actually kind of ties into current day mold wines. That's kind of where a lot of that idea started and started as a holiday drink, going back to the holiday thing. That was a really popular thing around holidays when they would drink wine was yeah. to put in nutmeg, cardamom, just like ba- basically whatever spices they could find and to it make very, it taste better. Yeah, and it was it was kind of this um, way back in the day, religion and politics, they they really came hand in hand. Yeah. And, you know, the argument can be said that that is pretty consistent with modern day. But just in hindsight, the Roman Empire was using Christianity in order to glue a bunch of different completely unrelated cultures together. Yeah. And in very much the same way, when you were a ruler, you needed to have these events that were so festive in order Mm -hmm. to keep your people manageable. Yeah. And that's another reason why they would try to make the wine as good as possible for these events. All of these things were were essentially designed to show the the wealth of the country, the wealth of the lifestyle where everybody knows their place. So, you know, even though peasants, filthy peasants, couldn't get their hands on wine per se, they could get their hands on beer. And this is just a fun little tidbit that I found in my research is uh, in the Middle Ages— you were kind of assigned like the characteristics of an animal based on the level of drunk you were I at. I love this. So, I love this. <laughs> so if you were like, you know, a little buzz, some mild intoxication going on, you were a sheep. Okay, you're behaving like a sheep. If you were, you know, moderately, you're, you're getting there, you're feeling it, right? You're maybe a little buzzed. You were a lion. 
if you are just, you know, just, if you're drunk, if you are highly intoxicated, <laughs> you are an ape. And then Going ape wild. <laughs> if you are wasted, shwasted, and shit-faced, you were hog a hog. Wild. Yeah, you were a hog. Um, I wonder if that's where that... I'm, I, I was I might, actually wondering... I might have to, to do some etymological... Etymological. Yeah, that, that word. That word where you it study words. It is the etymological... Uh, I'm going to do some... Hog wild. Yeah, I'm going to do some etymological <laughs> research on uh, hog wild. Anyway, that was a fun little uh, tidbit that no, I found. No, I love that. And from now on, like... We, we've agreed this is how we're going to yeah. use this. Yeah. So, hey, man, how are you feeling? Sheep. Yeah. How are you feeling, dude? I'm ape. I'm so ape. I'm so ape, dude. I'm so ape. Bro, I'm so ape right now. Wasted? Take my keys. Hog. Yeah, hog. 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 <laughs> Don't let me on the hog. I'm hog. <laughs> so, people who were hopefully not getting much beyond lion, the clergy, were, <laughs> were the people who actually are responsible for keeping a lot of this knowledge of winemaking and viticulture alive, as I said before, the Benedictine monks and the Cistercian monks in particular. So the Benedictine monks were primarily in France and Germany. The Cistercian monks were more kind of in the Iberian Peninsula area. Cistercian monks actually in particular were very important for their viticultural knowledge because they passed that knowledge onto their congregants primarily in what is modern day, at least Portugal. They would teach the congregations how to make wine. It actually became mm -hmm. a very communal process during harvest where even children were helping like pick grapes. Which is oppressing. Yeah, like it became a very big communal effort, but that also, again, really helped preserve winemaking knowledge that they had accrued. And we all know the Benedictine monks were like, they're the ones who mapped out Burgundy, and they are the ones who thought to map out by vineyard. So they had a very invested knowledge of very specific, at least for the time, very specific viticultural aspects. Like, I mean, aspect. They understood aspect. We know Dom Perignon recognized that the way that a vineyard faces in relation to the sun changes the nature of the grapes in that vineyard. Precisely. Again, advancing that idea of terroir yeah. that yeah. we we're talking about. So they really kept that alive. And these groups, uh, we know today, at least the Cistercian monks in Portugal, were thought to have kind of led to the selection of Pinot Noir, Spapergunder, Riesling, Cabernet, and Traminer vines. So this is kind of more approaching the Renaissance, and this is where we start seeing the Vitis Vinifera vines that we're used to today being named. Yeah, and this is when you actually started to see, again, writing come back into play. Yeah. Because for a majority of the Middle Ages, writing was not really a thing outside of legal documents. And so then once it started being a thing, and a lot of that had to do with political battles that were being waged between different countries, mm -hmm. uh, specifically between Europe and all the countries that it wishes that were Britain, Yeah, um, that's when you started seeing this uptick. And so the Benedictine monks especially, they started writing out a lot of different things, including, hey, well this is going to be where we're growing this and yeah. we're going to be using these methods. And they started to track things. Yes. It's interesting you bring up England because that's actually where I was going next. So England was and is, if you know anything about global finance, the UK is still outside of the US, one of the big financial centers of the world. They got into the game a little early. Huge banking investments, just that, yeah, they control a lot. So that was the case also in the Middle Ages. They were just a very wealthy nation. We even talked about how 
a European or a, sorry, a, a British monarch was able to destroy France's cognac economy with just some trade restrictions. Well, and what's crazy is so like the the Pope was considered the king of kings. Mm-hmm. They had the most amount of influence out of anybody. But the fact was, is that the only reason that they had any of the influence that they did was because their religious authority gave them authority over the king of Britain. Yeah. I mean, when you have King Henry basically being like, oh, I'm just not going to observe the Pope anymore, and he could just do that, and people went along with it, like, that's a very powerful position to be in, right? Precisely. So, anyway, going back to England during this time and how they related to wine, they were growing grapes up until what was called the Little Ice Age, which hit its peak in the mid-1500s, but started in the 1300s, mid-1300s, if I remember correctly. They were growing grapes, but they were also a huge importer of wine. They imported, particularly from France, but just even the Iberian Peninsula, they imported from wherever they could get their hands on. They really liked wine. So they actually, this is an interesting tidbit that I did not know, they controlled Bordeaux up until 1453 after the end of the Hundred Years' War. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. They had a lot of stake in the land holdings there. Uh, A lot of the Bordeaux wines went directly to England. During this little ice age at the peak, Bordeaux, Burgundy, and the Rhine Valley, which is in Germany, modern-day Germany, became big, prominent winemaking centers. That has lasted, obviously, until this day. So with all the English trading that was going on, when this little ice age hit and they had to stop growing grapes within England they started looking for even more wine to import, right, for particularly their aristocracy. That led to them really investing pretty heavily trade-wise in the Iberian Peninsula at the start of the Renaissance period. Something Michael and I were talking about earlier, and something I did not know, is that uh, Portugal, in particular, is kind of responsible for a lot of how winemaking is done to this day because of their trade influence, particularly with England. Access by sea is a thing. Yes. And so yeah, being, big thing, particularly at that time. So being able to access a premier wine-growing region with as much power and influence as the British Empire had, it was kind of like, this was ripe territory, as, yeah. as, as I might say. So in the late 1500s, the Iberian Peninsula had a huge leap forward in winemaking technology. That was that they started putting sulfur in the wine. Now... This even kind of has a little bit of a dodgy history because it like became illegal and then it was made not illegal, but then it spread to other places where they started using it and started realizing that it was a good preservative for wine. Uh, and at this point, I just I, I mention it every time that we mention sulfates. <laughs> They're not bad for you They're, unless you're actually the very small percentage of people that's allergic. If you can have dried fruits and it doesn't bother you, yeah. you are not allergic to sulfates. Yes. You do not have a sensitivity. If you do, there are ways to to filter against that. I have used those filters. My mom happens to be one of the population that is sensitive to sulfates. There are filters for you. You do not have to prevent yourself from enjoying yeah. good wines. Or you I mean you can go the natural wine route. That or is Or you can go well. the natural wine route. If they're readily available in your area, not every area has them, but but like you go to any good wine shop and they're going to have wine filters that are available for you at very good rates. Yeah. So, Anywho, so sulfates. So sulfates, Portugal and Spain began using sulfates in wine or, well, sulfur. I don't know exactly if they're equivalent to the modern day sulfites that we're using today. But Portugal, what really gave them the claim to fame was their sweet wines. 
That's what England really liked at the time. These were made with what we think are Malvasia and Muscatel grapes, which is actually Vitis occidentale, not Vitis vinifera. So that's a distinction to make there. But because of all this trade, and particularly trade from their wine export markets, they had the largest trading fleet in the known world at the end of the Middle Ages. They were trading with Japan, fun fact. That is how far Whoa. they were able to get oh, their trade yeah. routes. Because yeah. even the Japanese word for wine is actually, um, it's just wine. Yeah. But it, and their word for bread is pan, which was mm -hmm. imported from Portugal. Yeah. That makes complete sense. That would yeah. have happened at the same time. So these uh, sweet wines just became very heavily, you know, popular wines. And then Portugal also gave us our first ever delineated, what would now be considered an AOC, uh, Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, which happened in 1756 AD. And that is the Alto Douro, which is the modern day Douro region, which is known for its port production. So that region is the first delineated, legally delineated region for wine growing that has ever existed. Which, again, huge advancement forward, because now we're looking at method. Now we're looking at how do you treat this? Yes. Again, this is, this is so exciting. Yeah. So based off of the 1756 date, you might recognize that as the time when Europe was really starting to go into the swing of colonialism. And that actually leads us to the new world, which is what we will be getting into in our next episode on the history of wine, because colonialism, not a great practice. Can't say I endorse it. Can't say I like a lot of the ramifications that we're still feeling to this day. However, we got some wine out of it. Yeah. So I can at least excuse that. <laughs> hey, we... <laughs> Sorry. As long as I we can just took your land and culture, but petite for dough. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That makes it all better, right? Yay. Yay. <laughs> but yeah, so that's kind of uh where my notes stopped. Did you have anything else on that? Uh, unless you want to because I, I did a lot of research on Rome. I did a lot, a lot of research on Rome. Give us uh, the three most fun facts of Rome as an outro that you found. Oh, God. So at uh, so Pompeii was actually a huge oh, site yes. for wine. Yes. So those who don't know, uh, Pompeii happens to be a little, a little spot um, that a little event happened where Mount Vesuvius erupted and it was so intense that it literally preserved everything as yeah. ash and stone. Yeah. And it's, it's awful. It's a, it's a human tragedy, but it did actually give us the opportunity to preserve even the prices of wine at the time. Yeah. And it was a hugely recognized region for wine growing in Rome. Exactly. And and it actually, the entire area being covered in ash was considered a huge loss because they didn't know that ash was going to fertilize it. <laughs> Volcanic soils are actually really good for grapes. Yeah. Fun fact. They're, they're fantastic. But specifically, there was a little, um, let me see if I can find it. Uh, there is a thing that was written on one of the walls mm -hmm. that actually tells you about how much wine was valued in those times. It said, for one, as you can drink wine, for two, you can drink the best, for four, you can drink Falernian. So that was a thing. Fun fact number two. Fun fact number two. Um, so apparently, 
Gaul was looked down upon by the Romans. I mean, they kind of looked down on everyone that wasn't a Roman citizen. <laughs> well, but that was the thing. It's interesting because Rome had this amazing ability to kind of hack the psyche of those that it conquered, right? So when they would conquer an area, it wasn't, oh, hey, now you're our servants. It's, oh, hey, now you're Romans. Yeah. So now you are part of the populace. Now you are part of the effort. You're under our protection and you own all of our accomplishments. But specifically, when they were exporting wine to Gaul, uh, most people in Rome, they would dilute their wine. Yeah. Because they didn't want to be perpetually drunk. In Gaul, they did not dilute the wine. So especially in those early days before they, they had that kind of sudden uh, demand spike from Roman cities, they were exporting tons and tons of wine to Gaul in exchange for slaves. So Gaul was actually enslaving their own countrymen just so that they could get their hands on undiluted wine. I love human nature. Is it, yeah, <laughs> I, I say fun fact, and it might just be a little bit messed up that I find the mutability of moral ethics. It's an interesting phenomena. Yeah. Even if it's not a good phenomena, it's an interesting it's, it's phenomena. It's interesting, but they look down on them and it's canonized. So they're like, the the people of Gaul drink their wine undiluted and often yeah and they are essentially soaked in wine at all times like they they really just would completely crap on the culture it's really funny that that's essentially the same quote that that one guy from britain said about americans prior to the prohibition yeah yeah listen to our prohibition episode we go more into it there Gosh, our prohibition episode was so how many much episodes fun. have we plugged in in this one? I think it's I think we're up to five. I think we're up guys, we just you know Is it five? Make us really famous, please. Please, <laughs> please. Um let's see. Fun fact number three. Fun fact number three. Here we go. Oh, okay. So our first survey of Roman agriculture was something called the Agricultura. This was written fourteen years after the destruction of Carthage. This was literally the point at which Roman dominance was established in the peninsula or, or all of Italy. And they were converting all of their treaties into Latin because they were trying to unify everything into one readable language. But at this point, when they're recording Roman culture surrounding wine, there's one specific highly misogynist law <laughs> that is just... The most brilliantly evil thing I have ever heard. We, we were talking about this before the episode. Oh my god, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. So, for those of you who don't know, of course, Rome had actually super small beginnings. You had Romulus and Remus. As the story goes, these were two kids who were essentially cultured by wolves, and that's how they came to be. So their world perspective at the very least what we would understand of them is that they were very brutal in the way that they viewed survival and so one of the laws which is just fascinating is that women weren't even allowed to drink in point of fact a husband had the legal right to kill his wife if he smelt wine on her breath which is ludicrous it's i mean again personal opinion and and probably uh, not probably, absolutely the right opinion. That's insane. And specifically, the law states, if you can smell it on the breath of her kiss, which makes it all the more evil. I do 
I I don't I can't say I like, but it's <laughs> it's a particular kind of aesthetic that it's with her kiss. You know, you come home from a long day at the symposium of listening to you know the senators do whatever. By God, you want to drink by now? Yeah, and you know, you come home and you, and you kiss your lovely, beautiful wife, and you're like, oh. I'm going to put you to death now because you drank some of my, you know, my 13 AD reserve wine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the, so they actually could preserve wine up to 200 years. One of the vintages of wine that was said to have been tasted, um, the guy who wrote the Rays Rustique, he actually did what we would consider. The guy. The guy. Um, What was his name? Shmulius Gallius. No, 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 Gallon. He actually did what we would consider modernly to be a vertical tasting because they had cellaring. And he was saying it has to be cellared in order to age properly. So he did that with the Falernian wines. And so he did it all the way up from 20 years to like, you know, the year of in order to serve to the emperor. Of course, his quality thing was, hey, at this point, it's been because they the oldest vintage was 160 years old. Mm-hmm. It's sweet still. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'd be curious as to what winemaking methods went into that. Well, I I can't I can't say as to what winemaking methods went oh, into it, but he, it was, those records are probably long if they were ever recorded down in writing in the first place. It, it was, was probably burnt. yeah lost yeah. the time. Yeah, um, but it was stored in an amphora, which yeah. again that clay vessel, mm-hmm. thin neck, yep, typically around seven gallons. Sealed with cork and then cement. So they were doing what they could. So those are my my big three fun facts about Roman wine. All right. So murdering your wife, murdering your wife, <laughs> uh, slaves, slavery, wine, yeah, and Pompeii, and Pompeii. <laughs> wow. I think this says a lot about you as a person. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, you know what you don't have to be sorry for following us. On laid back lush on instagram and twitter oh my god you see he doesn't do them as often but his are high quality <laughs> high quality plugs <laughs> oh lord yeah no th- th- thank you guys so much for for sticking with us up to this point and hopefully you've stuck with us up to this point yeah and, and we really do appreciate it this is our 33rd episode and we are so excited that we're able to that's so share weird you. that's right? weird like we're here this is the time that uh jesus would have been put to death so <laughs> so we're ending the podcast we're both sacrificing ourselves for your sins the sin of drinking barefoot wine oh. after listening to one of the episodes of this podcast. Actually, no, we're not going to die for that. We're going to come to your house. Yeah. And, and we're going we're gonna to raid your refrigerator and throw out all those terrible wines you're we'll drinking. We'll bring you those seven deadly zins. Remember how we started this podcast as like, a, you know, let's get people into wine. Let's not judge anyone. And here we are just like, we're going to break into your house for drinking cupcake. Well, but it's it's different. We're not here trying to say, hey, you're drinking cupcake. So, you know, you should never drink wine. We're just like, hey, you're drinking cupcake. How do you take your coffee? Let me see if I can find you something better. <laughs> well, hopefully you're still with us and we are very grateful for it. And we are very appreciative of your listenership. Thank you again for joining us. Please do follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Let us know what sort of content that you would like to see, as well as giving us feedback. Or if you happen to be somebody who has the potential of promoting us um, or 
you know, sponsoring us. Than, hey, um, LA club promoters, just Blair stream laid back lush for clear skin in your clubs. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. No, the last message that I got for a group that wanted to sponsor us was for like crop tops and it was like sportswear. And I was you just did like, not tell me about this. Yeah, Michael. no, they keep on contacting me and I'm just like, I, I can't model this for you. <laughs> Oh, I think you can. I, uh, oh, I think you can, well, Michael. I'm flattered, Gabe. I'm very flattered. <laughs> you should be. But it's not my style. I'm mm. wearing a sweater right now. I like sweaters. I don't want to expose my midriff. Crop sweater. We'll talk. Anywho, thank you again for listening. Uh, I have been Michael. I have been Gabe. Oh, bad. Ew. Cheers. Cheers, but bad. Cheers.